Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started tonight, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we go through our study in Kings and the history of Israel, we are reminded that you are the God who controls history, that history is the outworking of your plan, and that within the framework of your plan, you have included enough flexibility for creatures to exercise negative volition or positive volition. And within the chaos that ensues from our negative volition, you still work out your plan for your glory. And, Father, we also see as we go through this study that you are a faithful God who does not forget us and a God who does not give up on us. You are a God who continues to exhibit your grace toward us no matter how disobedient people may be. And, Father, as we live in a world where there is indeed chaos around us, just as we see in much of the time period that we're studying in First Kings, we know that, nevertheless, we can relax and we can trust in you And we need to keep our eyes on you and our eyes on the word and not get our eyes on the different things that can go go on in the world around us. Father, we pray as we study tonight that our focus will be on you and you'll be glorified in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get started in our study of 1 Kings, I thought I'd give you a little report on the trip up to Canada. Last March, John Cross, who is the uh, director of Good Seed, uh, international, and basically the founder had asked me to come up and speak to their and be the Bible teacher for their annual staff conference. Good Seed has their international office in Olds, Alberta, which is about maybe 50 or 60 miles north of Calgary, and that's where John lives, and there's they have oh, maybe... Um, eight or ten people on full-time staff there. That's their international headquarters. Then they have a U.S. headquarters in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. They have another office in Scotland. They have another office in in Quebec, in in Ottawa. They have another office in um, uh, a couple of other places overseas, one in St. Petersburg, I believe. The way Good Seed began was that uh, the original five men that were foundational 
to the ministry, we're all missionaries with New Tribes missions. Now, New Tribes is one of the better mission, large missionary organizations out there. New Tribes sends people, sends their missionaries primarily to areas where nobody has gone before. And over the years, I've known several who have been with New Tribes and always been impressed with their training, with their understanding of biblical truth. Uh, New Tribes, I think, has published a, uh, a series called Foundation, right, Sandy? Firm Foundation? That is a one-year curriculum for children that takes you from Genesis to Revelation, and it focuses on salvation. We use that as part of the curriculum we have in prep school. As John had been the director of, the, I think, the director and coordinator of training for about 20 years with them, he was a he served 10 years in Papua New Guinea. He and his wife Janice, and they had a number of adventures there, I'm sure, which we didn't even talk about. But as time went by, they began to realize that what really is essential for not only training staff, training believers to have an impact in evangelism with people, but also in training new converts, people who come out of a Hindu culture or a Muslim culture or a pagan, uh, new age, secular, humanistic culture to think biblically and to really challenge a lot of the uh, pagan presuppositions that they, the baggage that they bring with them after they're saved, he came to understand that you don't just evangelize by just starting with Jesus. God didn't just start with Jesus. God started with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, and it took him 4,000 years before he thought people were ready for Jesus. It took 4,000 years to prepare the human race so that when Jesus showed up when the second person of the Trinity was incarnate, there was enough information given to where people could look at him and understand who he was and why he was here and what he was going to do. And when you start talking to people about the gospel and just say, God loves you, what God are you talking about? What God do they hear you talking about? If you're talking to somebody who's been in New Age pantheism, well, they're just hearing some impersonal force. If you're talking to somebody who's in uh, Hinduism or Buddhism, or if you're talking to a Muslim, uh, they're hearing Allah. If you're talking to uh, people from other religious backgrounds, they have they, they they front load that word, and it hasn't been defined yet. God defines everything progressively in Scripture, and so that by the time you you get very far into Scripture, you understand exactly who God is, and you understand who man is. And there's a clear understanding of who God is and who man is and what man's problem is long before you ever get to, to, to the cross. You have all the preparation as you go through the Old Testament with the uh, tabernacle and the Levitical offerings and sacrifices, and all this is just part of that, that training. So John wrote a book in uh, about 96 or 97. I'm cutting out a lot of the progress here, but he wrote a book he was still with New Tribes, and he wrote a book as part of their staff for, for, to provide material for people called Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. And I know some of you have read that. And uh, first time I became acquainted with it, it probably hadn't been out very long. Uh, he had been at North Stonington Bible Church, which was just 10 miles down the road from uh, Preston City Bible Church. And he had been there, and several people at Preston City had gone over there and heard him. And I had several people say, hey, have you read this book? This is, this is a good book. And I'm always skeptical, like some of you are. 
and I've never heard of this guy, John Cross, don't know anything about him. But okay, yeah, and of course I was a brand new pastor there, so I didn't know a whole lot about who was recommending these books, and I don't know whether they have any discernment or not. So I picked up the book in typical self-absorbed manner. I was immediately impressed because when I turned to the bibliography in the back, he recommended only five books. He said, there's only five good books that I recommend. And the second book on the list was a book by Tommy Ice and Robert Dean on spiritual warfare. So I said, well, this guy's got to have his act together. He, he knows truth when he sees it. So that was my first exposure to John. And then I came to find out that he was, uh, that Charlie Clough had known him for a number of years and they had, uh, spent a lot of time really, um, um, you know, sharing ideas and talking through a lot of these concepts in Charlie's framework series is very similar to the whole approach that, that uh, John had had developed. Well, as the book took off and people were sending in requests and all kinds of missionary organiza- organizations were responding very positively to this material, saying this is exactly what we need to train missionaries so that when they go out and they begin to uh, have some small group Bible studies or just get three or four families together or couples or two or three people and they begin to... Uh, lay the groundwork to witness to them. This is the kind of material we need. We need study guides. We need to translate it into Russian and into German and into Chinese and into Arabic and, you know, all of this. And and so John went to the New Tribes board and submitted this. And they said, well, this is great and we back you 100%, but this is really a little bit outside of the purview of the mission of New Tribes. So we encourage you to let's, we'll help you transition out of new tribes and start, uh, this is as an autonomous uh, ministry developing video, uh, written material, study guides, all this kind of material that uh, missionaries, churches, people can use. And so that's what they have done. That's what they do. And so that's who Good Seed is. And so every year they have a conference up there, and they've had Charlie as a as a speaker a couple of times, and they've had one or two other uh, pastors who've gone up there who are firmly entrenched within a um, broadly based, more teaching, pastor, grace-oriented, free grace, gospel, dispensational orientation. So that was a good time to go up there and a good time for John and me to spend time together and talk about a lot of different ideas which we did. We got the, I got there the first day. I went a day early. I was still going to miss Thursday night class, so I might as well go a day early and suffer and go up into the mountains to Banff and uh, Lake Louise and, you know, have a little enjoyable time like that. So I did that, and we spent the whole day together, saw some great sights, saw a white wolf walking through a pasture and saw some several mule deer and lots of cows, and I didn't get that, couldn't get the camera fast enough to get that white wolf. But we, uh, that was, uh, I flew up on Wednesday, and I stayed at a bed and breakfast. Some of you may have gotten the email, some of you may not have. I stayed at this bed and breakfast called Auberge Brown, and Auberge means inn in French, and Brown is the name of the original builder of this uh, classical Victorian home. And so as I, we went in that night, we'd been um, at his house and doing stuff and all day, and it was about 8 o'clock at night, and I was been traveling all day, and I was tired. But I noticed that there were two Bibles sitting downstairs just on the, like the mantel by the, by the fireplace. And then when I went upstairs, there was a tapestry, and you've seen me use this picture as a background on some slides of Jesus on a hill 
overlooking uh, Jerusalem. And it's a picture of Jesus when he is uh, weeping over, over Jerusalem. So I thought, well, there, there's something religious going on here. Now, what you don't know is that Canada has a population of about 33 million. That's the whole country. And the percentage of people there who would identify themselves as Christians is such a small percentage of the total that not even the UN, that great bastion of spiritual guidance, uh, not even the UN will classify Canada as a Christian nation. And it is primarily a nation of just secular humanists, atheists, and New Age pantheists. So it's very unusual to find Christians up there. So I thought, well, I wonder what, what we're running into here. So the next morning I came down for breakfast, and the uh, <clears throat> couple who owns it, Peter and Linda, were down there, and she fixed a great bre- breakfast, and he sat had coffee with me. And I said, well, uh, I saw a couple of Bibles in there, and the picture upstairs are, are you all Christians? And he said that they were, and I said, well, what do you mean by being like that? What do you mean, Christian? She said, well, we believe Christ died for our sins, and we go to a charismatic church over here. I thought, well, that's interesting. So we were talking, and, and I, they still didn't know anything about me. I like to fly under the radar if I can. Sometimes you tell people you're a pastor, and they think you just grew, grew an eye in the middle of your forehead, or you're a third sex, or something like that. But um, So as she was talking, she said... Uh, something kind of unusual. She said, well, you know, I've, I've been studying the Bible for a while and I've been going to church for a long time. I suddenly realized this last year that we really need to get back to the ancient ways, to the old paths. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that's real new age uh, terminology. She said, I, I realize Jesus was Jewish and we really need to understand the Jewish backgrounds of Jesus. Okay, that sounds good. So I started telling her about... Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's class that we had last year on the life of Jesus, the life of the Messiah from a Jewish perspective. And she was really interested in that, so I gave her the website, told her how to just click on that, and she could go to that and listen to some of those those uh, classes. And then that was it. John came and right then picked me up, and he gave her a book called By This Name, which is the same format as Stranger, but it's really geared towards somebody who knows nothing about Christianity, doesn't even know what a Bible is. Just So, so he's, got, he's got a couple of different books out now. He's got that all follow the same framework, but they're tweaked. One's tweaked more for a Muslim. By this name is tweaked more for somebody who has zero understanding, just coming out of sort of a more of a secular, pantheistic, uh, New Age kind of background. And so that, he had that with him, and he gave her a copy of that. And then we left. And that was Wednesday, that was Thursday morning. That's when we went up to Banff. Then we had the conference, and then after the conference, we came back, and my last night was going to be at that bed and breakfast again. So I came in, and she was just so excited to see me. She said, you're not going to believe it. I got on your website, and I've listened to the first 10 hours of Hebrews. I thought, well, that would not be where I would recommend starting, but somehow the Holy Spirit's in control, and so we'll just have to relax and think he knows more than I do. So she, uh, we, I came in and got my bags in and got all settled and came down for some, for some late-night coffee. And she said that she had, she had gotten on the website. She said, but I really didn't know who you were and whether I could trust you or I had no idea anything. So I looked at uh, the site you told me to look at, but then I wanted to hear something 
that you were teaching, so I decided to go to Hebrews. Uh, I looked at everything. I thought, well, I've never heard anybody teach on Hebrews. I'll just start there. Now, for somebody coming out of a charismatic background, and for those of you who has been a, about three years since we started Hebrews, you don't remember, but one of the first things we went into was Revelation, uh, how God revealed himself in many ways and many forms in the Old Testament. And I went through the doctrine of dreams and visions and how the canon of Scripture had closed and, and that, which is just, that really hits a charismatic right where they're living. But she just loved, she said, you just turned everything I've ever been taught upside down. But it was great because you showed how it came from the Bible. And for all these years I've been a Christian, I've heard pastor after pastor after pastor say, we need to test the word, test the word. Don't just take somebody's word for it, test it. They never tell you how. Well, you never told us we needed to test it, but you told us how. You go to the scriptures and you showed how you go to the Bible to validate everything that is being said. And she said, that was just incredible. So they had several questions about different things, one of which was, what's a canon? Is that, that some kind of God? <laughs> Never heard the term canon of Scripture before. You don't shoot them with the canon of Scripture. But. So it was, a good, uh, it, was, it was a good time together. We had a great visit and had a good visit the next morning. And, and she's a fabulous cook. So that was that was good too. That was really good for. I'm glad it was just breakfast. If it had more than that, I would have been in trouble. So the, it was it was very good. The conference at Goodseed, which is why I went up there, had it was attended well by about maybe 60 that were there. The numbers flexed as some were it came in late and some had to leave. The unfortunate thing was a lot of their staff was sick. You know the same kind of crud that's going around here, but they had several people who had to be in the hospital and this and that and the other thing, so it wasn't as well attended as they had hoped because of that, but it was a very good conference, and uh, many of the people there, uh, if you look on the pictures, I had that one picture of the young couple and their little kids, and that's Joe Thomas and his wife. Joe is Jeremy Thomas's brother. Jeremy's the pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church, and Jeremy's gone to Israel with me a couple of times, so that's kind of a connection, and Joe was down here two years ago at the pastor's conference. That was when he first went on staff with, uh, with Goodseed, and he pretty much ran the conference and did a great job. So it was, a, it was good, but there's people like, like Joe, and there was another guy there who they'd both gone to Texas Tech, and they'd been uh, listening to a lot of Charlie's material, and then there was a guy there whose family's in Connecticut. And so there were a lot of connections, a lot of people who listened to uh, Charlie, listen to me, listen to several other people, and so it was a um, it was it was a welcoming environment, and uh, we had, it was it was a good good week, and I did get some rest. Got about nine hours sleep one night, which was really good. All right, we're in First Kings, and we have uh, shifted gears as we come out of the United Kingdom. United Kingdom is the period of Saul, David, and Solomon, roughly 120 years because the text isn't precisely clear on the dates for each of those, um, each of those reigns. Solomon, there's a text, I mean, excuse me, Saul, there's a textual problem there. Uh, David isn't precisely clear and Solomon is at 40 years, so, but it's roughly 120 years. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because almost right out of the chute here when we come to chapter uh, 15, we start having to address some of the chronological issues 
related to these, these chapters and these kings and trying to understand who reigned when and how long the reigns were because there's uh, a little bit of a, of a difference there. What we're going to look at as we, as we look at this chapter and the other day, last week, as I was reading through this, first three or four times through, I actually thought that if I just, that just on the basis of 1 Kings 15 and 16 down to 16.28 with the death of Omri and the ascension, uh, accession of, uh, of Ahab to the throne in the northern kingdom, that I could probably cover that in an hour because these are really quick Summaries. We have seven kings, two in the south and five in the north. A couple of those reigns are three of the reigns, one in the south, two in the north, are under three years. So there's just not a lot there. But I don't want to just stick with what's in First Kings because there's more information that's important information over in First in Second Chronicles. So we're going to shift back and forth between First Kings chapter 15, and Second Chronicles, about chapter uh, 13. So you might want to just stick a piece of paper in there so you can flip back and forth because we get part of the story in Kings and we get another part of the story in Chronicles. Now that's going to take us back to the beginning when we first uh, began to study Kings. The purpose of the writing of First Kings was to develop the history of the nation, what happens to Israel, to the, to the Israelites, after David dies in light of the Mosaic Covenant. What happens to the nation in light of the Mosaic Covenant and in light of the blessings and cursings that God outlines in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy uh, 28 and 29 if Israel is obedient, God will bless them in certain ways, and if Israel is disobedient, God will discipline them in certain ways. And that discipline, of course, covers the five stages or five cycles of discipline that we have studied many times in the past. That's the framework. So the writer, the, the final compiler, let me just use that word, the final compiler of, of kings is putting this together to argue a purpose. As I've said before, history in the Bible is is editorialized history. It is the divine viewpoint of history. God is picking and choosing from hundreds of thousands of possible events, circumstances, people, and happenings. And he just focuses on one or two to because he's showing us how to think about these things in terms of his plan, his purpose, as he revealed it earlier in, in the Pentateuch. And so we see the discipline that's come on Israel because Solomon disobeyed God. He allowed himself to be influenced by his many different wives and concubines, and he set up uh, idols and temples for all these foreign wives that he had so that they could worship their gods, and he led the nation into idolatry. And because of that, his reign is stamped at the end. When he gets his final grade, he gets an E for evil. And God is going to not punish him directly because of David, and we keep running into that terminology, because of your father David, I won't do this. Because David was faithful, that blessing by association continues to spill over from generation to generation in many of the same ways I believe that in this nation 
we continue to reap the blessings from the original colonists and founders of this nation, although that that stream of blessing is pretty diluted and is is fading quickly these days. But and so what we see is that God disciplined the nation uh, because of Solomon's idolatry and because of their idolatry, and the nation divides with a civil war between north and south. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. The son of of uh, Solomon, who takes the throne, is Rehoboam. And Rehoboam takes the throne and immediately shows his immaturity. He's 41 years old, and he acts like he's 17 years old and doesn't know any better, and he listens to the young men rather than the wise counselors, shows no humility. The result is that he decides he's going to up the taxes, increase the burden upon the people, uh, which uh, always shuts down the economy. Anytime you increase taxes, there's less less money available for commerce and for business, and and that's something that that we uh, current administ or the upcoming administration needs to learn. But there's a tax revolt that occurs basically when the northern kingdom separates ten tribes to the north, and they establish their own uh, kingdom in the nor- north under Jeroboam. And we saw that Jeroboam decides to that in order to give a real esprit de corps to his nation so that they're not uh, going to the southern kingdom to worship at the temple in Jerusalem and they won't get distracted and envious and want to reunite, he's going to establish an, an alternate religion in the north. He has two uh, golden calves created, and, he's, and, and as a typical example of uh, tyrannical government, he is going to uh, get involved in historical revisionism. He says, this calf is the calf that, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And this is the God that gave you freedom. And so he begins to rewrite history in terms of his own religious presuppositions and in order to serve his own ends and his own agenda. And Jeroboam is going to uh, reign in the north. Rehoboam then in the south. Rehoboam reigns for... 18 years or 17 years, because you'll read both accounts. They start the same year, and yet as we come to uh, 15.1, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, uh, Abijam became king over Judah. And Abijam is the son of Rehoboam. And according to this text, he becomes king in the 18th year of uh, Jeroboam in the north. But in other texts, it's in the 17th year of Rehoboam. Well, if they both started the same year. How does Rehoboam have 17 years and Jeroboam 18 years? Sounds like a conflict. Well, that's because they counted the they counted the years differently. It's like if you're in a, if you're an American and you go to a high-rise building, the ground floor is the first floor. But if you're a European, the ground floor isn't the first floor. The first floor above the ground floor is the first floor. So if you have a 30-story building, 30 floors in a building in in uh, Berlin, uh, it's going to actually have one more floor than a 30-floor building in the United States. And that can get confusing when you're trying to coordinate these reigns and figure out who was when and who lived when and how long their reigns were, and you try to set up a chronology because... The kingdoms shift. The northern, the, the southern kingdom starts off using what is called an accession year counting. 
accession year. That's a, um, I wonder if I, did I get a slide with that? No, I didn't. Accession year, that's spelled A-C-C-E-S-S-I-O-N. A-C-C-E-S-S-I-O-N. And an accession year counting means that if the, if you have the, the new year occurs, if, if the new king comes in and is in, installed before the new year, even if it's December the 1st, of course, we're gonna, I'm going to transfer this to our calendar. Even if he becomes king on de- December the 1st, that is counted as his first year. That's his accession year. So if he, if he were to come to the throne today in 2008, 2008 would be his first year. But see, the thing is, 2008 is also his daddy's last year. And so there you have an overlap. So that can create problems. Then after about five or six generations in the, uh, in the north, where you go through uh, Rehoboam, Abijah, uh, Asa, then Jehoshaphat, and then Jehoshaphat's son comes in, and they switch to the non-accession year mode of counting. Now, in non-accession year, that means that the year he comes to the throne is not counted as his first year. Even if he comes to the throne on January the 5th and is the king from January the 5th all the way around to December 31st, that's not his first year. His first year is his first full year, and that's called non-accession year counting. And in the north, they use the non-accession year mode of figuring uh, the years of, of a king for about half the time of the northern kingdom, and then they switched to the accession year mode. The southern kingdom has the non-accession uh, year, then it switches to non-accession year, and then the last third it switches back. Are you confused? I've been confused over this ever since I first heard it when I was in seminary. Maybe going through it this time, I'll figure it out. And I'm not expecting you to get it all down, but at least learn the vocabulary, know what I'm talking about when I allude to it, because this is why it seems so difficult to get everything to jive when you're trying to add up the years of these various reigns, is because they counted them differently at different times. And and the text coordinates things, because we'll see, for example, uh, when Abijam comes to the throne, it's in the 18th year of Jeroboam. And then when he, when uh, Asa comes to the throne, it will be in the 20th year of Jeroboam. Now that looks like it could be three years, but if he just has a partial first year and a partial third year, then it's not much more than a whole year. Well, now you get into real problems. So I'm not even going to try to go there. I, I, I'm not going to confuse myself or confuse you by getting into it in any more detail. But I will put up <clears throat> on the screen a slide showing the basic years in which they reigned. Rehoboam comes to the throne in roughly 931 to 930 and reigns to, to 913. Now, 13 from 31 is how long? Somebody who does numbers can tell me that. Don't, don't make me embarrass myself. 13 from 31 is how much? 18? Okay. 13 from 30 is 17. So in the 18th year, 
That would be the way they figured it according to, Jer- uh, to Jeroboam. But when they used the accession year uh, or the non-accession year, they'd say 17th year. So Jeroboam uh, lasts longer. He goes from roughly 930, 931 to 910. So he's got about 20, 21 years on the throne. He outlasts Rehoboam. The next king is Rehoboam's son, Abijah, Abijah, or in some texts, in Kings, it's Abijam with an M at the end. In Chronicles, he's Abijah. Now, this is where it gets real confusing for a lot of people in the Old Testament because there are different ways in which the names are spelled in the Hebrew. And sometimes it's due to a copyist error. He inserts an extra vowel or, or it ha- puts an end, uh, consonant ending on it. So you have Abijam, in, um, my, which means my father's of the sea. And you have Abijam in, in First Kings and you have Abijah, in Chronicles, but Abijah is the same name that you have of the prophet that we saw last time, Abijah the Shilonite. Then there's another Abijah that shows up in the next chapter, so that can get confusing with three of them, so I think that's why they stuck the end on his name, M on the end of his name. He only reigns for somewhere between one and a half to three years, and then he dies and his son Asa becomes the king in the south from 911 to 910 to 870, 869. About the same time, just after he comes to the throne, then Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, comes to the throne. Jeroboam dies. Nadab comes to the throne, and we'll see that the prophecy is fulfilled. He doesn't last but a little over a year, and he is assassinated and uh, Baashak takes over as the king and wipes out the whole family of Jeroboam, so the prophecy of Abijah comes true. Uh, that is Abijah, the prophet from Shiloh. Uh, so we have Baasha, and something happened, and I lost my the date slipped over. That t- 909 should... Let me see if I can fix that real quick. There we go. That, clean that up, and that, clean that up. There. Okay. Baasha is ranged from 909, 908 to 886. So he's up for about um, 22, 23 years. Then Elah... And Eli is a short timer. That's Baasha's son. He's like Nadab. Baasha has a prophecy against him, and all of his family is going to be wiped out. And that begins with Eli, and the rest of his the, the family's wiped out, so there's no one left to uh, fight for the throne. Then there is a civil war in the north, uh, fighting between uh, Zimri and, uh, or, excuse me, Zimri then, is the one who assassinates Elah. He lasts seven days. And then he's taken out by Omri. But there's a challenge to Omri by Tibni. There's about four to five years of civil war. And then Omri is going to die, and he will be succeeded by his son Ahab. And that takes us up to Elijah. 
So that just gives you a little bit of the overview. So what we're talking about is in the north, in the north there are going to be five kings, Nadab, Baasha, Eli, Zimri, and Omri. That will be covered in these 68 or 69 verses from chapter 15 down through uh, 1628. 66, uh, 66 or 67 verses. Then in the south, it just covers two kings, Abijam and Asa, and both periods cover about 40, 43, 44 years, depending on how you uh, put it all together. Okay? First Kings 15.1. So in the 18th year, the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over became king over Judah. Now, Abijam's dates are roughly 913 to 910, depending on how you want to you factor that. Roughly 913 to 910, but it might be a little shorter. could have been just 913 to 911. The parallel passage for this is in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. Well, he's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 3.10 and 2 Chronicles 11.10. 18 to 22, and the key passage we'll look at is, is going to be in Second Chronicles uh, 12, I mean, excuse me, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles 13, 1 to 22. Second Chronicles 13, 1 to 22. He's the second king of the southern kingdom, and he is the fourth in the Davidic line. So second king of Judah, the fourth in the Davidic line, and counting David, the fifth king that the southern kingdom has had. His accession year is in the 18th year of Jeroboam, but it's the 17th year of Rehoboam. Now, I have one other slide here to point out. Let me get there. Okay, 1 Kings 15.2, we learned that he reigned three years in Jerusalem. This just is just a summary verse. We'll find these in each of these rulers. Summary verse, how long he reigned, and his genealogy, his family. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maacah, the daughter of Abishalom. Now, Abishalom is just a, a variant reading of Absalom. Okay? Abishalom is just an insertion of the eye there. Uh, that's a variant on Absalom. So, his mother, uh, Abijam's mother is Maacah, who is the daughter of Absalom. So, that's within the Davidic family. Now, what you, the thing that we have to keep our eye on here is when we go through kings, is the focus, even though we're talking, it talks a lot about the northern kingdom, and the Chronicles only talks about the Davidic line, the focus is really on tracing the seed, which, it, remember in Genesis we talked about the seed, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, and then Abraham was promised a seed, and, and really the Old Testament is tracing the seed all the way to Jesus. So we have the Davidic line, and we have to pay attention to this. So David reigns for 40 years, and then we go to Solomon, and then Rehoboam reigns for uh, 18 years, and then we have Abijam, and then Asa for 41 years, ending with Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat doesn't, we just learn about him in this chapter. We don't get into him until later on after we get into the Elijah episode. So this is the breakdown. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, and Jehoshaphat. 
Now, where it starts getting interesting is that David, one of David's wives, was named Maacah. And she's the mother of Absalom. Absalom had uh, three sons and one daughter. The sons all apparently died early. They apparently all died in in uh, childbirth or in childhood, according to Second Samuel eighteen eighteen. But he had one daughter, Thamar, in the Hebrew, and she's referenced in Second Samuel fourteen twenty seven. So apparently she married this Uriel, who is the father of the second Maacah, who's named after her great-grandmother, who was a wife of David and the mother of Solomon. This Maacah marries Rehoboam, and she is his true love. She is his favorite of all of his wives, and he had a lot of wives. But she is a pagan. She has her own Asherah. Pole and she's into the fertility religions and everything else, and it's going to take her um, grandson Asa to finally almost lock her in a closet and destroy all of her pagan idols. Now, the other thing we learn about this is David had another son named Jeremoth, and he had a daughter, Mahalath, and Mahalath is also one of Rehoboam's wives, and he Rehoboam married another wife, Abihail, who was the daughter of Eliah, who was one of David's brothers. So that would make um, Rehoboam is marrying a distant cousin there. Uh, Maacah is like, what, a first cousin once removed. And uh, Rehoboam and Abihail have three sons, Jehu, Shamariah, and Zaham. And then Solomon was married to Nema, one of his many wives, 600 wives, and she's the mother of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam also had 18 wives, 60 concubines, from whom he had 28 sons and 60 daughters, including Atai, Ziza, and Shelomith, who are the brothers of Abijam. Now, Rehoboam was really sharp because he knew he had these, these sharp sons, and he couldn't let all of them succeed him on the throne. So he picked Abijam and he set the others over different cities. So he gives them responsibilities. He gives them uh, jobs and oversight to, for protection of the kingdom. So that gives you the Davidic line, kind of a, a breakdown on uh, how they all fit together. But notice how closely the marriage lines are to first cousins once removed and second cousins and third cousins. And so there's a very tight Davidic line here, and we're going to be tracing the seed all the way through as I build one slide off of another. Now, I'm going to correct the image up there. That the, the, I, I realize that those, uh, the purple names don't show up real well. That's a I can, I'll, I'll have to fix that. I did this on another program and brought it into a Mac and lost some clarity. Okay, so verse 3. Verse 3, we get an evaluation. And this is what we'll typically see in, in almost every one of these kings will be told when he uh, came to the throne, we'll be told who his father or mother or both were, will be given an evaluation of him in light of the Mosaic Law, God's evaluation of them. We'll be told a few things about what they do 
their failures and their successes, will be told when they die, will be told where they're, and in some cases will be told where they're buried, and then will be told who their successor is. So those are the different elements, and I'll hit those as we go through. So 1 Kings 15.3 we read, He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. So there's two things that are said about him in terms of him, his spiritual relationship to God, and that's the key issue as a king under the authority of the Mosaic Law. It's not how it's not their politics, it's their relationship to God, because the issue in the Mosaic Law is if you're obedient to God, God will take care of everything else. If you're not obedient to God, then God is going to take the nation uh, to the woodshed. God is going to discipline the nation. So the crucial factor in the nation's blessing and prosperity or cursing and discipline has to do with the spiritual orientation of the leadership, and that is fundamental. So we read two things about him. Number one, he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. Rehoboam had about five, four to five good years where he followed the Lord, and then he didn't follow the Lord anymore, and he became involved in, in idolatry and the promotion of, of idolatry. So he walked in all of those sins. He continued in the path of idolatry of his father, uh, Rehoboam. And then the second thing that it said, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord. So he's, he's, he's partially, it's more than lip service. He's just like an uncommitted Christian. He's, he's just, you know, one day he's trying to do what the Lord says and the rest of the week he's not. So it's, the text says his heart was not wholly devoted. And that phraseology we'll see, or he set his heart on something, this is really just an idiom for what we would call positive volition. What is he committed to in terms of the basic orientation of his thought? And so he's not wholly devoted uh, to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. And then there is a... Uh, 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 an anacoluthan. You know what an anacoluthan is? That's when you take a side trail to explain something rather than following the straight line of the conversation. So he's going to take a slight departure to explain the background to this. The background is, nevertheless, see that sets up a contrast there, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. Blessing by association. Because of David, because of God's covenant, his contract with David, because God is faithful to that, he is going to give uh, Abijam a uh, reign in Jerusalem. He is going to prosper him. That's what that phrase, give him a lamp, give him a presence in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. So he is viewed as a transition king. God is going to give him a short time of two to three years, year and a half to three years, somewhere in there, to prepare the way for his son and to further establish Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. Where does that come from? See, we're not told in this chapter about a key event because the writer of Kings isn't concerned about telling us everything there is to know about Abijam. 
just that he's, it serves within the function of the author of Kings that he is just a transitional king, but he's blessed because of David. So verse 5, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, which summarizes the whole uh, Bathsheba affair, the adultery and the conspiracy to kill uh, uh, Uriah, and then ultimately uh, having him put at the front line so that he would be killed. So other than that, David gets an A. If it weren't for that, he would have gotten an A-plus in terms of his relationship to the Lord. So because of the Davidic covenant, God is going to bless Abijam, even though he doesn't deserve it, even though he is disobedient. And the key principle we learn there is one that applies to us in terms of eternal security. Whether we are obedient or disobedient, our relationship to God is secured by a, by a sealed contract, sealed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, so that even when we're disobedient, God doesn't break the contract. He continues in faithfulness, so it teaches us something about the essence of God. It teaches us about his faithfulness, which is related to his righteousness, and it's related to his veracity. And faithfulness means God is always going to do what he says he will do. And so that's related to his righteousness. He can't do anything other than being righteous. It's related to veracity, which is truth, and it's related to his immutability. He can't change. So faithfulness brings into focus those three aspects of the essence of God, his faithfulness, immutability, and veracity. And that applied to Israel in the sense that it meant that they were secure in their relationship to God, even though in disobedience God would often discipline them and discipline them quite, quite harshly. So we see the foundation of that relationship is based on that contract once again. Verse 6 says, And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of the life. That's just kind of an aside, just saying, Remember, ever since there was the split, there's been this civil war going on between the north and the south. Verse 7, Now, now we get the summary. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Now that's not referring to over to First and Second Chronicles. Well, how do I know that? Because First and Second Kings are written, at least the final format probably comes at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. But these are written by various prophets uh, along the way. I have, let me see, I have a slide here that is... Uh, relevant to this. We have various prophets in different periods of different kings. Well, I can't find the slide. Maybe I didn't put it in here. Okay, well, some of this is written by Edo, and we'll see that his name at the end. And, and what happens is under each king, there's a prophet associated with him, and I'll create a chart on that, which we'll look at next time. And each one of these prophets would have compiled the records that, under inspiration, that went into kings for that particular that particular king when he was alive. And so, as the years went by, you had each prophet summarizing these events. And then, at the end, about the time of um, about the time of the captivity, you had someone like Jeremiah or Ezekiel that would compile it in its final form. 
and had before them all of these records, plus these books of the Chronicles and the books of the wars of Jasher and some of these other sources that are no longer extant. The Chronicles is written after the return from the Babylonian captivity. And part of the reason Bab- uh, Chronicles is written is to sort of light a fire under the Jews that have returned from Babylon and they're back in the land and they can't quite get motivated to finish building the temple and they've sort of lost their national identity and their uh, their patriotism. And so First uh, and Second Chronicles are written to go back and rehearse the glories of the Davidic line and to trace the Davidic line all the way down to uh, the present time of the return from the Babylonian captivity, the return from the exile. So the authors have different purposes, and that's why the, the uh, uh, Chronicles doesn't even cover the kings in the north at all. It just focuses on the, on the Davidic line. So uh, the Chronicles that's mentioned here is simply a, uh, another work, a history, a recording of the uh, events of the kings of Judah. It's not referring to First and Second Chronicles. And then we're told at the end of verse 7, and there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And that is simply saying, remember, verse 6, there had been this war since this split occurred, and it continues all the way through the reign of Abijam and Jeroboam. Conclusion, verse 8, so Abijam rested with his fathers, which means he died. He literally, he's gathered to his fathers. He goes to the place that his ancestors have died. He goes to the grave. It's just a little more uh, picturesque way of expressing it. And they buried him in the city of David. That is in the area just south of the Temple Mount in the, uh, in the old, what is now called the old city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. So, what got left out? Well, a lot got left out. Um, I'll just summarize with about four observations. First of all, this King's account focuses on just the spiritual evaluation of Abijam putting the Davidic covenant first, that he's blessed and has the blessing he has because of David and because of God's faithfulness to that covenant, not because of who and what he is. Second observation, the Chronicles account shows how God is faithful in this way that is not covered in the King's account. Third, the key event that we find in Chronicles, in Second Chronicles chapter 13, is a major battle, a major military campaign that takes place very early in the three-year reign because Jeroboam is still on the throne. Jeroboam dies right near the end of uh, Abijam's reign. And what we learn again from this, the account in Chronicles, in Second Chronicles 13, is that the battle is the Lord's. And that's the fifth point. The Lord's victory is not dependent on human reason, on human skill or experience, but it's dependent upon God's power and God's plan. And God inserts himself into history at key points to just turn everything upside down in order to accomplish his purposes. So let's turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 13, and we will look at what happens there. The first, the first verse pretty much rehearses, the first two verses rehearse the information we've already covered. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, 
Uh, Abijah, now there's no M here, same guy though, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was, and here it's spelled differently. This was probably a scribal error that crept into the text. Uh, Micaiah instead of Maaka. Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Now, then we get into the military aspect, beginning in verse 3. And in verse 3, we learn that there's this major battle that occurs between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And at this point, I'm going to really challenge my computer dexterity. I didn't want it to do that. Let me go back. We'll cut that off, and now we'll go there. But it already moved. Okay, here we go. Now we have a map here. The border uh, between the north and the south is around the south of Dan here. Then it curls up this way and goes over the north of Benjamin, just to the south of Bethel and Ai. Now remember, Dan set up those golden calves in Bethel and in the north at Dan. So Bethel is right on the border between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Benjamin and Judah are in the south, and you see right here that Jerusalem is located uh, right on the border between the uh, tribal area of Judah, uh, Judah and Benjamin. So they're going to come up right into this area just to the uh, west here, of, I mean just to the east of Ai and Bethel at a place called Mount Zemariah. And both the Septuagint and Josephus refer to this mountain as the Horos Shomeron, which possibly Shomeron and Samaria, which is Shomeron, uh, have a uh, linguistic connection. So it could be just just out uh, by by Samaria, what is later Samaria. And they they come up to uh, Mount uh, Zemaraim, and Judah, Asa has four hundred thousand. And Israel, or excuse me, Abijah has 400,000, and Israel has 800,000. So the south is outnumbered two to one. Huge armies. This is like, this is like Gettysburg. And Jeroboam is old. You, you ever seen that, um, what is it, the saying you see on some, some guys who wear it on a baseball camp, you know, I'd rather be, be old and sneaky than young and, idealistic or something like that. Well, Jeroboam's old and sneaky, and he's going to send half of his men around the backside of, of uh, uh, Abijah and trap them and get that whole army caught in a pincher move and, just, and, and basically set up this trap and just decimate them. So they're in bad shape. And we, beginning in verse 3, we read that Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, mighty men, 400,000 choice men. He drew up in battle formation, uh, and Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him with 800,000 choice men. Now, Abijah then goes up on Mount Zemaraim, and he is going to give a little, little propaganda speech against the northern kingdom. And the first thing he says, it gives a foundation for his reasoning, and it shows that he's got some divine viewpoint because he's going to base his whole rationale on the Davidic covenant. He has some measure of truth. And he begins his argument 
with a reference to the Davidic covenant. Verse 5, should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? That covenant of salt indicates permanence or durability. In verse 6, he reminds them of Jeroboam's revolt, that Jeroboam led a revolt against uh, against uh, Rehoboam. And he gathered to himself worthless men. The Hebrew there is wreck, worthless men, which is a good translation. Scoundrels, these are SOBs, sons of, Bel- sons of Belial, literally, in the text. So worthless men, sons of Belial. And then he says, but... They took advantage of poor old Rehoboam when he was young and inexperienced and couldn't withstand them. He was 41 years old. That's why I said this is propaganda. This is, this is not an accurate... Everybody wants to excuse Rehoboam. He, maybe he wasn't very bright. Then in verses 8 to 11, he focuses on the spiritual issue on their side. He says, Jeroboam built these golden calves, which you brought into battle with you. They must have gone up north and brought the other one down from Dan. He said, you think that your golden calves are going to defeat our God who established the temple in Jerusalem? I don't think so. Verse 8, now you think to withstand the kingdom of Yahweh, which is in the hand of the sons of David, and you are a great multitude with you, the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods. Have you not cast out the priests of Yahweh? Look, you, you ran the Levites, out of the northern kingdom. And they've come down to the south. And you've consecrated and ordained these other priests that have no right to be priests just because they want to be. They just have some um, burning in the bosom. That's what the Mormons call it. They just have some you know, inner liver quiver, and they think they want to be a priest, and so you'll ordain them. But he says, in contrast, as for us, the Lord is Yahweh is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests who minister to uh, the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and Levites attended their duties. In other words, we're doing it according to the law. They burn to the law every to the Lord every morning and every evening. They burn offerings and incense, and they set out the show, showbread on the table of showbread, and they light the lamps, the golden menorah, just as uh, it's commanded in the Mosaic law. And he says, "Now look, God Himself is with us as our head, and His priests have the sounding trumpet." to sound against you, and we will go into battle against you. And then verses 13 and following describe the ambush that Jeroboam has set up in order to try to completely destroy the armies of the southern kingdom. But when the southern kingdom realizes that they're trapped, they cry out to God, and God answers their prayer. Why? Because of the covenant. They're just claiming a promise. They're not real spiritual even. They just claim a promise, and God intervened and says he struck the enemy, and Israel fled, and Judah pursued them and killed 500,000 men from the north, which is approximately two-thirds of their army. So there is a tremendous slaughter that takes place. And verse 18 gives the key as to how they won the battle. Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And that Hebrew word there is sha'an, which means to lean on something for support. They leaned on God. They relied exclusively upon him. And so verse 19, Abijah pursues Jeroboam, took cities from him, Bethel, Jeshana, and 
uh, Ephraim. Now, if you look here, what that's talking about is is all this territory right here around Bethel. All these three sites, Bethel and the other two, are all right here on the border. So the southern kingdom is uh, expanding their territorial control north, but they capture Bethel, which is where Jeroboam had set up one of the golden calves. So they are they have taken the southern uh, sanctuary, which he had set up. And then uh, we read in verse 21, But Abijah, Abijah, grew mighty, married 14 wives, and begot 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah's ways and his sayings are written in the annals of the prophet Edo. Now we don't know anything other than that, but he was a prophet. He was taking, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and wrote down these events that are recorded in back in 1 Kings chapter chapter 15. Well, we didn't get past the first king, so we'll try to get through the second king next time. But we'll make our progress, and what I want to do is go through these kings, uh, maybe a little quicker the next couple of weeks, and then come back and we'll have some good uh, application doctrinal points that come out of that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, see that just as in Israel there were times of political instability and economic chaos, just as we face in our own time. And yet those who leaned upon you, those who relied upon you, had victory. And that's what matters is that we put our focus on you, that you are the God who just as true to your promises to us today as you were uh, to them at that time. Father, we pray that we might be encouraged by remembering these events. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.